a Mitch and Jeremy exclusive. Are you ready? On air. Online. Are you ready to have a good time? On your smart speaker and wherever you stream. The Mitch LaFon and Jeremy White Show. The Mitch LaFon and Jeremy White Show. Available wherever you stream. Catch up on past interviews and episodes on demand now. Subscribe so you don't miss any of it. Really excited about this new music that's going to be coming out. Also, the last ever Genesis shows. The last domino. Final dates kicking off on uh, March 7th at the uh, Mercedes-Benz Arena in Berlin, Germany. Heading towards, I mean, she's doing Cologne, Hanover, uh, performing in France, Amsterdam, London at the O2, which just reopened and wrapping up the Cineworld O2 Arena on uh, March 26th, which apparently I think is going to be the last show ever. Um, welcome to the show, Nick Collins from Genesis. Thanks right. for having me, guys. And of course, yeah. Better Strangers. Yeah, Let's not better forget. Sh- well, we're going to talk all about Better Strangers, but I know Mitch has Mitch has been on like this crazy, crazy Genesis kick lately, and he wants to pick your brain on pretty much all the songs that are in the set list and <laughs> pretty much <laughs> no, everything. Let's, let's let's stick to Better Strangers for now. We'll we'll get to that <laughs> stuff later. Though I will say, um, I have seen three shows of Genesis and one with Phil on the Better Dead, and and I was just so impressed by the drumming and uh, I, I was talking to Leland Sklar and he said he said you know Nick's in this band because he deserves to be here and I just sort of went yeah you're right <laughs> absolutely no, thank right you. yeah, yeah. thank you uh, before we talk about the Genesis stuff let's talk about this project Better Strangers for a second because yeah. you know you were in a band before and you kind of dissolved that now you guys kind of took the remainder of the band that was there and got this new project going and the music is really cool because it, it sounds commercial, but it also sounds experimental, which is like right up my alley. Uh, talk a little bit about the music because it's really cool. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, yeah, that project is, I mean, it's been kind of like a continuation of several projects that have been in the works for a few years now. Um, me and the bassist Yannick Weingarten and the guitarist Jerry Rodriguez, we've been friends for, you know, uh, a while, you know, since we were pretty much like, you know, early stages of high school. And uh, we were playing in bands together and, you know, really grew as musicians together, which has been a really awesome thing. I mean, I always felt like, um, you know, I remember talking to my dad about this, actually. He's like, you're, you're, you're lucky that you found your people at such a young age, you know, the people that you kind of understand. and Your jam and buds. Like, yeah, relate to musically. So we really kind of grew as uh, musician and, uh, musicians and as a band um, throughout, you know, all these different projects. And, uh, and so when the last uh, thing kind of fell apart where there was no kind of, you know, doubt in our minds that we were going to keep going. We just needed to find the right piece to the puzzle. Right. And when uh, we found Ricky, our singer, it just, it just, you know, clicked instantly for us. And we started making a, a brand of music that we're really proud of and really into. And, you know, it's really just getting started as far as like, you know, because of COVID, we couldn't go out and play shows. So we were really having to hone in the sound, like more in the studio. And that, you know, that takes a while, you know, sometimes, you know, the, the, the EP that we had previously released, um, which, you know, actually isn't available anymore, but that was like really like the first handful of songs we wrote together. So now the, the, the you know, we got a few singles that are coming up, uh, coming out in the next few weeks slash months. And that's really kind of where we've been able to dial in the band's sound. And yeah, like you said, we were trying to, you know, we're, we're making rock music and trying to make, you know, rock accessible to people. Right. But at the same time, you know, the, the bands that were influenced by, you know, the likes of whether it's, uh, you know, the us musicians, like the guys like Zeppelin or Pink Floyd or Tool or whoever it is, you know, that has a big impact in how, you know, experimental we want to try and get with this stuff to just not have it be kind of, you know, just boring music. Because like, 
to us, it's like it's about bringing that genre forward rather than just kind of living in nostalgia of what it was. Well, well, let me ask you this. Uh, when you changed singers and you went out and got the Casa, uh, in your press release, it says that you had a defined vision for the group and you didn't want to just get any singer. What is the defined vision of the group? Well, I mean, the, I think that, that the defined vision for the group was more um, as a band rather than for a singer, because the truth is we didn't know what we wanted for a singer. Like we right. had a lot of people that we, you know, I guess audition is the wrong word, but you know, that we jammed with and, and right. tried to see if it would work. And we never really had like a set kind of, you know, blueprint, like this is the guy we want. You know, I, I didn't know. It's like, do we want a guy like Chris Cornell? Do we want a guy like Dave Grohl? You know, like, I don't know, you know, um, but the the thing with with us is we wanted somebody that could settle into this band and know what we were trying to do because like for us it's it's about the songwriting and it's about um the relatability that we have to each other when doing that and so when uh, we got together with ricky um or Dacasa as as he's known by like we it just kind of worked you right. know and we really um you know our influences were very similar while also being very different like you know the basis of this band was built on our love for the red hot chili peppers when we were like 13 years old, you know? Wow. So they, yeah, they were the, they were the, like, I wanted to be in the red hot chili peppers, you know, it was like the band <laughs> that I loved so well, much. Well, they've had enough members. So there's still, there's still a chance for that to happen. Quite frankly. <laughs> well, it's, weird, exactly. it's weird to hear him say that. Cause it's like, like my red hot chili peppers was Californication. Like I was in like grade six when that record came out. So right. it's like, it, it's kind of interesting to hear you talk about that. Like which, which chili peppers record was your record? I mean, there's so many. I mean, now I, I'd say my favorite Chili Pepper record is the Blood Sugar Sex Magic. I mean, that that you know changed my life completely. But it was just funny that as soon as we got together with Ricky and and we we're you know like, oh, what are some of your favorite bands? And you know, he said the Chili Peppers. We just kind of went on, on this like 30 minute rant about <laughs> it's like a bromance going on. Yeah. Really, the Peppers? Oh, that's so. Exactly. <laughs> that's like Mitch and I, but with Def Leppard. <laughs> exactly, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So, like, we knew kind of what we wanted, um, you know, as far as like how a singer could settle in with, right. with the band. Because, like, the three of us, since we've been together for so long and been friends for ages, it, you know, I know sometimes it's difficult for a new member for any band to just kind of get in there and then you start writing songs and you're, you know, you're spending so much time together. And so you got to be comfortable. But it just worked out so naturally with Ricky and, you know, the way it's gone and and you know what we've started to kind of really dial in has been really awesome on our end how do you find somebody like him like you just scrolling through instagram like hashtag singers or like how do you, you got an email him? apparently yeah we tried everything man like we we like we lost we were start, we started putting up like flyers at like guitar center you know like it was just Old getting, school like, <laughs> yeah, it was getting really desperate near the end because i mean you know we we had like our inner circles and and you know there was a limited amount of people that we knew that we thought could work and ricky it was literally by chance you know i think he was scrolling on instagram one day and for some reason came across the the you know our band at the times instagram and he saw we were looking for a singer and then we just got an email and um you know we sent him a few demos and it was funny because the way it worked previously is we'd do an audition you know like hey can you learn these songs learn these songs whereas with him it was just like at that point we had tried a few people and we were kind of losing hope so we just, we just sent him these two instrumental demos and you're like, here, do what you want to them. And if it's good, we'll, we'll talk about it. And he sent it and it was the best thing we'd received. And we were like, oh my God, I can, I can see this. Like now I, I get it. Yeah. And so we, he flew to my, um, cause he's based in Texas at the moment. Right. And um, he flew to Miami and yeah, we really just, you know, hit it off on the first kind of trip, which was great. He's got a, he's got a great voice. I, I'll, yeah. I'll give you that. I mean, just a, just a great voice. Uh, 
as you're doing the auditions, how, how do you sort of weed out the people that want to just be, oh, it's it's Phil Collins' son. I'm just going to, like, do you get a bunch of those, like, sort of weirdos that just want to sort of... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know how, I mean, because since we kind of, the way we advertised it was through the band Instagram, and I feel like you kind of okay. have to do your homework to know that kind of side of it. And the band was. Yeah, exactly. Like to know who I was specifically. Like I, I don't think we really kind of put it out there. I mean, we we could have. You know, I'm sure it would have like you know saying like oh you know Phil Collins' son would have done something, but that's not what we wanted yeah. to do. You know, like that that would have you know like you said it would have drawn in kind of a weird crowd. Well, it would have polluted the pool. Yeah, exactly. And um and also and like the, the, the truth is is as much as obviously now that I'm playing with Genesis, I you know I love their I love that band and I love their music. But we also, you know, realize, well, I realize that, you know, Better Strangers is not Genesis. So, and I know that if right. we would have done that, there was going to be some people who would have probably come in from that angle of like sounding like my dad. And that's yeah. not really what we wanted, you know? Right. Well, look, it's like, it's like Wolfgang Van Halen, like with the entire mm -hmm. Van Halen fan base saying like, hey, like, how come you're not covering Panama Live? Like, how come you're not playing Van Halen songs? And he's like, I'm trying to do my own thing. Like, yeah. that was my dad's <laughs> yeah. shit and I'm going to do my own stuff. No, for sure. And yeah, I mean, I, I like, I, I, you know, I follow Wolf and, and, and he, you know, I'm so happy that he's doing what he's doing, you know, and just doing his own thing. You know, you got to respect that because like, you know, you could easily, you know, and, and, and I, and I, you know, I hear it, you could easily just kind of, especially after playing, you know, obviously like I'm playing with Genesis now, but he played in Van Halen. So you could totally like fall back on that. So I really respect that he's doing his own thing, man. And, you know, doing his own music and recording all of it. So it's, yeah, it's really great. Talk to me about doing your own thing and what the plans are. Cause of course you, you go on to the, the, your dad's uh, not dead yet tour. Now you're doing Genesis. It sort of takes away some of the time that you can play or, or, or pay attention to better strangers. Now that it's sort of coming to an end, how do you sort of move forward? Do you just book a lot of shows? Do you get in the studio and do a lot of albums? Do you a YouTube presence. How do you sort of build it now moving forward? Yeah, I mean, the the good thing that I will say is I, you know, uh, well, throughout the entire time, you know, going from the Not Dead Yet tour as well, like uh, Yannick and Joey have been so, you know, cool about everything. You know, right. they, there was no kind of weird vibe that I was going away for a certain amount of time. I mean, I was lucky and, and I guess we were lucky that the way the tour was working was that um, we do like you know, do like maybe a few weeks on the road and then we take a few months off, you know, right. uh, this, this Genesis tour, since it's happened a bit quicker, is a bit different. So we've had a bit less time to do stuff in between, but you know, when, when I'm not there, we're, you know, we're kind of attending to all the business stuff so that when I am there, it's all kind of about the music. And if we're not playing shows, we're, we're in the studio and, and writing and recording and we're always trying to stay active. And obviously now that this is ending, um, yeah, the goal is basically to just get out there. And, and now that there is no kind of, you know, break, it's just to be able to capitalize on the momentum. Because that, that is the tricky bit is, you know, building a bit of momentum and then be like, all right, you know, I'll see you guys in a few weeks, you know, and I know that's tricky for them. And so I'm, you know, I'm lucky that they've been really receptive to it. And, you know, and they, they obviously, you know, see what, you know, what I'm being involved in and, and, you know, I guess have an appreciation for it. So I'm really grateful for that. So, you know, I thank them for that. They're not jealous guys like, oh, look, Nick's going to play the Mercedes-Benz arena in Germany and I'm, I'm going to flip burgers at In-N-Out like a prick. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, jealousy no, there. Not at all, honestly. I mean, I think, I think if I was playing in like a, a different band, yeah. I think it'd be a bit, you know, a bit different. Like they, they could totally- it's a little like, different, like, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think with this is, you know, they, they, 
with, with my dad, I think a lot of it was like, you know, it was great for me and also to be able to just share those memories with my dad that, you know, when I get older that I'd be able to look back on, you know, when I was like 17 doing that with my with my dad, you know, not a lot of people get to experience that. And I'm so glad I, I, I was able to. But yeah, I definitely think if I was like on the road with like, you know, I don't know, Queens of Stone Age, you'd be like, what the hell, dude? Like, you're just leaving <laughs> other band. Like, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just quickly talk to me about about that ending because the Genesis ending is is the end for your dad in terms of, of the touring, but for you it's a new beginning, so there's something to look forward to. But what's sort of the sentiment around the household and the camp? I mean, is it like there is there an excitement that after 50 years we're we're going? Is it an excitement for you that you get to move on to better strangers, or is it sort of a sad like ah oh, well it's the end? Like how is what are we feeling? It's a bit bittersweet uh, for different reasons. I mean, uh, like, you know, I'm here rehearsing now and there is no kind of sense of like, you know, sadness or, you know, at the moment, you know, I think they're, you know, on the on the day of the last show, there, there may be, you know, and they probably will. Um, but, you know, the thing I've learned is that all the guys in the band, you know, Mike and Tony and, and my dad, they, they kind of just live in the in the moment and they're not really too worried about, you know, what they're going to be feeling like in a bit. I'm sure that it is going to be really emotional for them. For me, being involved in it has just been such an honor and a privilege to just be able to share this kind of last lap with them and be part of it, you know, because not only is it music that I grew up with, but, you know, you know, I've said this to, to multiple people that learning the songs, I've just become a really big fan of the band. And so to be able to like play that music with them on stage, it's just been really great, especially as a drummer. And 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 obviously, onto that, being able to share those moments with my dad, you know, um, and you know, my my dad's life has literally been being on stage and being a musician. Yeah. So and it's been you know, great. For, yeah, for him, I guess you know, saying you know, saying goodbye to that at the end of this is gonna be, it's gonna be tough for you know, tough for him and tough for us you know as in his his family just who you know that's that's how i i've known him you know i and more so my older siblings who right. you know my oldest uh oldest sister jolie she was around in the peter gabriel days of genesis you know so she's right. like literally lived through everything you know and that's kind of like it for him but you know i, I it's it's it is really bittersweet i think there's a, a there's a happiness that we're able to do it finally after you know years of postponement because of covid and um you know i, I do think that there's a sense that like, you know, it's a triumphant thing that we're doing it and that we're finishing it. But I do also, you know, I'm sure that the guys are going to miss it once it's done. Let me just ask you this. How has playing those songs affected your playing? Because Better Strangers, as you said, is not Genesis. But yet after two, three years of rehearsing and playing and do, and, and of course doing your death, you must pick up something. It's It's got to affect your playing somehow. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, like, I, maybe it's the wrong word, but you know the the music definitely got proggier as I got right. you know, as I as I did this. Just just like you know, that's what I'm listening to. That's what I'm playing all the time. And and you know, it's not just down to Genesis. It's a bunch of different bands that you know that we've been listening to. I mentioned like Tool and then, you know bands like whether it's Porcupine Tree or whoever, like just progressive rock bands that have start you know started to creep their way into the way we write our music and the way we yeah. we make it. Um, so it, it definitely has had an impact. I mean, but I think it's more like a subtle thing. Like it's, you right. know, I don't go like, you know, I don't go like, hey, listen to this song. Let's do what they do here. You know, um, right. which could be the case for another band. You know, like there's different bands where, you know, you love, I don't know, the bridge or something. And you end up kind of trying to 
pick out the best bits. But for this, it's just been more of like a subconscious thing, you know, since you're around it so often and, and all the time, it, it just ends up becoming a part of the music you create. A little bit of the muscle memory creeps in kind of thing. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Talk to me about the songwriting, because you, you mentioned that you're, you're involved in the songwriting. And of course, and I don't want to put everything on your dad, but your dad's one of the greatest songwriters ever. Does he sit and look at your songs and go, oh, son, no, 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 no. You need to add a couple of words here. That's... Oh, no, no. That, melody, that melody's a little off there. Yeah, that melody. I don't know what you're doing there, son. Come on. What, what is that? No, he doesn't. I mean, he doesn't like, you know, I guess, insert himself on our music unless right. I ask him or unless we just like it came it comes up in conversation. Um, it came up in conversation over Christmas. Then we sat down for about an hour and I showed him like a bunch of the demos and, you know, tracks that we have. And he, you know, actually surprisingly liked a lot of them. But th there was one song where he was like, oh, didn't like that one. And, and, no, son, no, no, no. oh, man. But not in a songwriter way. He was just like, he's like, but to be honest, Nick, he's like, if your 70 year old dad liked all your songs, there'd be something wrong with it, anyways. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know. it's got a point. Like, did you have those, those, those conversations over the years, sitting at the dinner table or at the pool, but, you know, out in Miami going, you know, son, when I write a song, this is the real, like, did he sort of teach you over the years how to write or, or where did like it come from? No, like I, I, he really didn't like, and, and that's one thing that I'm pretty grateful for, especially when, when somebody's, you know, parents like, or, you know, a parent does this kind of thing. Um, it's very easy to force that on your kid just because, you know, like you want them to, to do the same thing. You know, that's like a mini version of you, I guess. Yeah. But he was never like that. And he was really kind of let me do my own thing. And, you know, throughout the years of bands I've been in, like, I'm sure he didn't like every single one I was in, you know, I'm, I'm sure there was, yeah, I know there were some songs that he did, you know, he was like, you know, it was actually funny because we had like a, 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 we found like an old, old, like, I guess, like documentary of sorts that we had made for like a band a, a few years ago. And he's in it. And at one point, there's like a, a great quote where he's like, you know, what they're doing now may not what they want may not be what they want to do in like five years, but you just got to support them. And that's like in my head, I'm like, that's his way of just saying you suck. Like, you know, saying like, yeah, band's terrible. But you know, you got no. But he honestly, he was, he's always been. Um, you know, if I ask him for his opinion, then he's given it to me. But it, we've never had this kind of thing where he feels the need to tell me how to write the songs. And also, you know, the, the conversations we've had when I have showed him the thing, uh, surprisingly, have always been really positive, you know, which here, is- Here you go, right. hold on a second. I'm gonna bring in somebody just for you. Give me one second here. We are gonna bring in uh, drummer Charlie Benante of Anthrax because he, uh, he uh, there's Charlie. Good day, Charlie, there bonjour. <laughs> Yo. Char Charlie, as you know, uh, went to see the Genesis shows, and he uh, it was widely reported in the media that he sat in the crying section because he saw <laughs> <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> he he saw what you were doing and what you were doing with your dad, and and it affected him, and it affected all of us. Uh, first of all, bonjour, Charlie. Uh, welcome. What's up, Charlie? Hey, um, hi guys, how are you? Yeah, so so Charlie, just what what would you like to say to Nick Colin? Because <laughs> it, it, it just right. I mean, it was amazing. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. It was uh, it was moving. It was something that I didn't expect was gonna ha would happen to me, and uh, and I wasn't embarrassed by it. I mean, talking to you guys <laughs> when we first did it, yeah, it was a little bit of like. Uh, well, no, we were all about it when you were telling us. We're like, yeah, that, that was us too. Like. Yeah, but it goes back to what I always said about music. Music should move you. It should motivate you. It should do something to you inside. It shouldn't just be. I, I shouldn't have just been at the show with my phone in the air filming it. 
I, I agree. Been feeling it, and uh, yep. I would say that it, that had a lot to do with Nick's performance, um, playing the drum parts the way I knew them to be played. Like his attention to detail was like spot on, and made it that much better for from for myself. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much, man. And by the way, I I I, I told the guys before, but I just got the chance to see the message that you had sent on the email thread and you know thanks so much for the kind words i really appreciate it you know uh, to, to see that you know the impact of you know the show going you know to to other musicians and you know other great drummers is just a really cool thing to see uh dude it was awesome right just like i said moving so uh yeah thank you and to your dad your dad it has been uh you know a drumming uh idol like since i was younger you know from even stuff like brand x and things like that you know phil's yeah. always been a drummer a drummer's drummer and then yeah once he stepped out in front and took over dude that took genesis to a whole new level it really did and and we seem to forget that he was a drummer but not just a drummer i mean he had these classic drum parts in in these early genesis songs we just sort of think oh he's the guy who does the studio and he's on uh, mtv but i know he's 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 a drummer's drummer i mean he's yeah. just talented as, as all fuck quite frankly yeah, yeah. I mean, that, so that was, whoa, whoa. go ahead sorry no sorry man no i was just saying that that was the kind of the thing with me because like since you know when i, I was born I, you know, he wasn't in Genesis. I mean, he did, they did the 2007 reunions tour, but I knew my dad as like a solo artist, really. That's, that's how I knew him being out front. And obviously I, you know, there was a handful of Genesis songs that I grew up with, you know, like the hits and stuff. But then when I really started diving into everything and, and seeing him as a, as a real drummer, and even just being here, seeing him part of a band, you know, being in a band myself, where it's like, all of a sudden you see your dad being part of that dynamic with other people. I, it was just really cool to see and just to kind of see him as a real drummer more so than a front man which is what i always kind of knew him as yeah. <laughs> let me just ask you this thing real quick there there was a quote from tony banks and i might get it wrong so correct me if i'm wrong but you went in to genesis for the rehearsals and you learned the parts from the albums and you got them down pat and you go into rehearsals and tony says stop 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 you're playing like the 70s pick it up make it more modern is that quote first of all real is it accurate and did did you sort of have to modern it up that, that that was that was just based on um we did uh like we were rehearsing like an excerpt from uh musical box off of uh, nursery crime and um you know there's a lot of very you know 70s prog rock feels like you know the you know all that kind of stuff yeah and um the so that awesome was stuff was, yeah yeah that's what <laughs> that's what he was referring to and i remember him just being like he's like yeah, it's it's great just you know if you could just make it sound a bit more hip and not as like 1971 <laughs> that'd be great you know and 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 which is you know it's, it's it's awesome for you know for them to give me that kind of sense of freedom because there is kind of a a good balance because obviously there's some songs that have you know that we're still doing from you know the the 70s era that you know, you got to kind of update and, you know, we're taking a bit more of a modern approach to it. But like that song specifically, I remember, you know, trying to really <laughs> nail down those old fills. And yeah. um, but, you know, uh, even the other day we were like running through some some other songs and he was just saying, you know, I was I was saying like, oh, I've been listening to this version or this version. And, you know, there's a few fills I want to try. He goes, hey, man, be my guest. It's just as long as they're not too 
you know, to 1970, you know, and that's kind of like a thing. For <laughs> also not too like over the top when you're doing some yeah. of those like 80s tunes. I mean, there's so many like uh, scenarios in the in the set where you like using the triggers, getting like the Simmons kind of sounds and stuff. Did you guys go back to like the original master tapes and sample those like to get into the uh, like for the live set or like how did you go about getting those sounds? Yeah, most of them like, you know, uh, like Mama and Domino and uh, a lot of those triggers from those songs are just taken from the record which was great um because wow. the our keyboard tech now he he always went on tour with them as like i guess like the tour handyman but he and um the genesis tour manager put they basically built the farm which is where they recorded like every record from like abacab onwards and um so they like he had the thing you know the wave files on his computer and it was funny because i remember sitting there with uh brad marsh my drum tech uh you know basically trying to like create the Simmons sounds ourselves because we didn't know how to get them you know and after about three days you know Jeff was like oh I have them on my laptop like literally all you have to do is just write it in and it's there sit there tuning trying to try to program it like just yeah yeah what about like front of house? I mean, the tone of the drums just sounded phenomenal like in the mix it was just so great and Genesis is known for having one of the best front of house sounds ever like do you have any say like oh you know i want like you know cannonball a gated reverb on my snare or i want them to sound dry like do you have that artistic input or is it up to like the band yeah. or the, the engineer i mean as far as like you know triggering wise and what i'm playing there yeah there's definitely some input i mean there's you know songs where it's like you have to have this trigger sound the good thing that that's been really great with with the genesis crew is a lot of them have been around for so long so they know the songs like our front of house guy uh, michelle he basically I mean, he's been with them for 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 you know a while and he knows the he knows the tracks he knows what you know kind of each song needs so you there isn't you know that much worrying that that's needed because since all those guys have just been around the band for so long they know the tendencies and they know you know what the drums are supposed to sound like um you know there's always a handful of things like you know hey can you bring the toms up please like you know like right you know, <laughs> turn the drums up in the mix and turn you know like there's always a bit of that but you know overall it's always just been um pretty dialed in from the get-go yeah go ahead i was gonna say do you have any questions go ahead i have a, I have a couple questions about the set list did um were there any songs that were you were excited to play but then they got tossed out yeah there <laughs> there there were a few um i remember like, cause at the beginning, it was like a laundry list of songs, you know, I'm sure. all three members, yeah. you know, and, and you could tell who wrote what, you know what I mean? Like, you know, which, <laughs> it was definitely favoritism of like, well, I think we should play this song. Oh um, yeah. But yeah, I remember like basically tearing my hair out at three songs specific or four songs, but, um, it was Los Endos that, that I, you know, really tried my best to get down uh, and we so never awesome. even rehearsed it. Um, wow. we did, uh, the back like apocalypse and nine eight from supper's ready as well um and that that was the worst one i you know i like broke a few snare drums just out of frustration because i would just like, I couldn't get it down <laughs> grab it toss it yeah and and i remember the it, that was like because we did um like the first rehearsals we did were in new york in like 2020 um january 2020 uh before covid to right. even see if we could do it. it wasn't like any rehearsing for a tour it was just to see if we wanted to and I remember hearing like Tony like play like the keyboard solo. So I was like, oh my God, it's going to happen. And then we just never got around to it. Just there's just so many songs. And and I think also because my, my dad can't play um, the drums, you know, there's only so much instrumental stuff we can do in the set without, right. you know, 
without it being too much, you know, because it, mm-hmm. it's not like before where a lot of the stuff could be instrumental because he's up there doing it. But now it, it is a bit different. And I think for the guys, they, they, you know, pick some of the bits that they really, you know, their favorite bits that they think would do the best in the set. Um, and then the, the last two was the instrumental part of Fading Lights. We do the front half, but we lead it into a medley. And then um, the live bridge from Abacab, which is like, I basically had to sit there and memorize all the keyboard, you know, solo parts just for us to do those, like practice a song, except the bridge, <laughs> which was funny. <laughs> we literally did all of it, except the part I was like, you know, super worried about. But you, you brought in Misunderstanding for like one show and then threw it right out. How come? Um... Uh, that that was like they they wanted to just I guess do something new, and then uh, they did it twice, and they were like, "Well, that was fun. Let's go back to the uh, to the old set." <laughs> I just you know I think it was it was like it was fun to do it, but I think um you know I it it, it you know it obviously definitely was a hit in the U.S. So I think that was why we they wanted to do it in the U.S. first. But after doing it twice, they were just like, I think as far as like the you know the the musical value that they kind of you know wanted to have in the set just diminished a little bit as opposed to having duchess in so th- we went back to having that one nice. it was too mainstream for the show that's well they, like. they they played it like just before they were going to come to montreal and i was like oh thank god this is great and they come to montreal and they didn't play it and i went yeah. oh dang it <laughs> yeah i used to hear that song every morning on show getting on the school bus and it was like that was like my genesis song and i was like damn they didn't play it <laughs> i know i know but i guess that's the problem when you're a band of that stature is that regardless of what you play there's always going to be the songs that a fan's going to go, oh, they didn't play Los Endos. Oh, they didn't play Supper's yeah. Ready. I mean, you know, right? And, and, and Anthrax, uh, Charlie, you do the same thing in Anthrax. You come to people, oh, yeah, they, didn't they didn't play, play Indians. Only. The they didn't play Only. You know, it's, <laughs> you know you're well, sort of stuck. You're stuck all you the time. Always have to, you always have to deal with that. And uh, yeah. we, we did something the last time where we did a Spotify thing. Or was it an Apple Music thing? Where we let the fans pick the, the set list. And... What do you think they pick? The same exact songs that we play all the time. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. And then, they, and then they complained about that. It's like, well, well Metallica did the uh, the tour in 2000, I think, 17, where it was pick the set list. And every night they played, it, they picked Enter Sandman, <laughs> nothing else. And you're just like, you're like, what are you doing? Yeah, but bands yeah. like, you know, the bands like you guys, you can do that. You're not like other bands where you're just going out and playing to the playing to the Pro Tools and it's the same 19 songs every night. Right. You know? yeah. Well, yeah, well the- um, uh, uh, there's a song off of, uh, I think it's just the Genesis record, Job to Do. Um, mm-hmm. Was there any talk about putting that in the set? No, that one, not specifically. I mean, there's a handful of songs where, you know, that I was like, oh, we've got to do this one or, you know, that, but I think for them, there's, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure with, with you guys too, there's, there, there's the mix of like, okay, what do people know? And then also like, what do we want to play and kind of balance, having a good balance between that? Because, yeah. you know, especially with, with, you know, the Genesis catalog, you know, there's like three different distinct eras and, and sounds, yes. you know? Yeah. And so I think trying to pick the best parts from all of it, you know, is tough. Like, like for, you know, uh, Selling England by the Pound is probably like one of the best represented albums in the set list, surprisingly, you know, as opposed to like there pretty much really isn't anything from like Nursery Crime or, or Foxtrot, for example. Mm-hmm. And that's not, you know, that's not, you know, it's not necessarily on purpose. It's just this is just happens to be, you know, how they think we can represent those, you know, that 
era. part of the you know that era yeah the in the best way um there was definitely a few deep cuts especially off that record there was a job to do and um i really i really like it's gonna get better so i was like i was like you know can we do that and um you know i just think there's just so many songs we already had to cut down the set list from what we already had because it was just getting into like you know three three and a half hour territory and we just said you know it's too much to do it i wouldn't have complained yeah <laughs> i don't I, I didn't have enough tissues to uh, <laughs> the last three the hours <laughs> <laughs> that's it the crying section would have been underwater flooded. <laughs> Uh, Nick, I want to go to gear just really quickly. I mean, your drum kit, I mean, it's enormous. And I love the fact that we're seeing a big drum kit on stage because you don't see that these days. Are you more comfortable behind the giant kit or are you more of like the basic kit kind of guy? I mean, I think they're like... It, it depends for which songs. For the Genesis stuff, it's definitely like well, it's, it's very hard. Yeah, it's very hard to do a lot of these songs without that big kit, just based on like the parts and just based on like. You know, my dad used to do a lot of fills with like, you know, the tom and the cymbals at the same time. And with the basic kit, it's very hard to do that. I mean, back at home, I use a bit more of a, I guess like a bottom style kit as far as like toms go with a few extra concert toms. I've started kind of overloading on the cymbals now. You know, nice. I think COVID did that to every drummer where like you couldn't go out and play shows. So you just like, you know, I, you know, I could totally do with like a second splash in, in right in, in this area. Another you know, like, 17 inch right there. Just why not? Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like Step Brothers. You know what I mean? Like that's just like what it turns into. But you need um, a gong. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, exactly. That's, that's what I'm kind of waiting for is just a with a ring of fire around it. Who used to yeah. was that Rush? Van Halen style. Van Halen style. That's a, yeah. But yeah, no, as far as like gear goes for, for this stuff, you know, the big kit definitely suits the best. And obviously we're using a concert Tom kit, which just helps bring some of the songs to life without really needing triggers. You know, there's um, a lot of songs that have those iconic sounds, which literally is just the drums going to the front of house, you know, with a, mm-hmm. you know, a bit of uh, gated reverb on it afterwards. But it's, you know, it's not like we're just using triggers the whole time for those songs too. So yeah, I mean, you, I feel like the nature, especially of progressive rock is you kind of need a big kit that's just kind of you know the only thing i'm missing is yeah. two kick drums you know <laughs> like right. that's it yeah. <laughs> you know? hey let me just ask you this one thing i saw this interview that you did and you said that you had a drum teacher named jean esperanto santo if i said it correctly um i was surprised that you said that in that video because i thought well dad taught you um talk to me about just real quick about where did you learn the drumming and how was it not dad that just sort of sat around and taught you yeah well i mean like you know, my dad never wanted to be so on top of me where like I would almost start hating the drums, you know, because gotcha. that that's so important, especially with drumming where like it's so feel based, like you've got to find your own kind of, you know, yeah. angle towards it um, right. and what you kind of want to do. Um, yeah, J- JP, yeah, Jean-Pierre Espirito Santo, he he was my fir- like my drum teacher when I first moved to Miami and he um, he was like my dad and, and he'll even say to himself, my dad was outstanding drummer but you know he didn't have much knowledge of the technical side of it he just did it and which is why some of his parts are you know so great and i I, you know even some of these fills that i'm kind of learning are like okay i've got to do it this way which isn't you know the way it's supposed to be but that's how he kind of played these iconic parts whereas jp like really taught me the kind of you know like the rudiments and and just the technique side of things which i think is important um you know, to any drummer to really kind of just at least have knowledge of that. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying you got to kind of be able to like sight read because I can't sight read. Right. Um, yeah. But, but just having some sort of knowledge about how to do, 
you know, um, certain things that, that just are in everybody's playing. You just don't notice it. But when you do, you, when you have that knowledge, you can kind of, uh, it just expands, you know, what you can do on the kit so much more. So yeah, he definitely really helped me a lot uh, when I first moved to just get that side of my drumming going too. Yeah, and I recommend folks go check him out on YouTube, the uh, the Jean Pierre, because it, it was just great. It was rhythmic, and you got the whole. They had a Latin sort of thing going on. It was terrific yeah, drumming. Yeah, terrific. We, did some cool, we did some cool drum duets, which was fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you do you uh, when you guys are playing the show live? Are you um, conscious about the tempo, or are you kind of locked into something going? Um, on? Yeah. Well, as far like there's a handful of songs where there's drum machine loops. Um, you know, like for like Mama or, you know, Land of Confusion has like a bass sequencer that's like, you know, that's there. Um, so those are obviously, you know, it's pretty easy to just, yeah. you know, you're basically playing to a drum machine. Um, for the other ones, yeah, like some of the instrumental bits are a bit more, you know, there's a bit more freedom in it um, because they just kind of move. There is no kind of set, you know, this is how the speed that's got to be at the whole time. But definitely at the beginning, I was, especially when you start playing shows, because we were, we, you know, I have this joke that we've almost done more legs of rehearsals than we have of the tour at this point, because it gets get out <laughs> own, you know, and um, so because of that, like when you're playing to nobody, you know, it's, it, you're just comfortable. And then all of a sudden you see a crowd and there's like that adrenaline. And I remember on the first show we did, um, you know, I was like, well, thank God, you know, Land of Confusion had a drum, uh, you know, had some sort of loop going on because I would have started that way quicker just based on like, yeah, feeling the audience like that um, and not, you know, not having done that in such a long time because of COVID. But yeah, there's definitely that, you know, con especially for my dad too, where, you know, there's, there, there is like, there's a right tempo, but there's also the tempo that, you know, you know, nobody's going to go back and be like, well, I didn't play it at the right speed. They're going to be like, well, the singing didn't sound, you know, the singing was trying to catch up. Right. It, was, it was too fast. You know? And so to me, it's always trying to accommodate to the rest of the guys to make them feel comfortable, especially my dad, if he's like ahead on a song or behind on a song, like just to make that kind of settle in and, and, and feel as good as possible. On your in-ears, like uh, with so much stuff going on with the sequencing and drum loops, like you have like audible cues, like invisible touch, keyboard, two, three, four. No, like, yeah, none, none of that. It's that's that's right. all like you know just memorizing the song, which I thought was you know honestly more important than knowing the the time signatures and tempos. It's just like what I just would do is just play the song and like in my car on the way to you know to the studio or something. You know, just yeah. be able to to just be one with the song. Cause like, I, we, we were talking about it the other day, like for the fifth, like I have no idea what time signature that's in. I don't really want to know what time <laughs> signature that's in either because yeah. you know, as soon as I know that I'm going to start thinking about it. And to me, it's just like just knowing the song and feeling out the parts and you know, like uh, the keyboards are such a big, you know, driving force behind those progressive bits, like, you know, for the fifth or cinema show, like that's really what I was kind of dialed into was, was those parts. Um, and just, yeah, just memorizing the song based off, like, you know, certain cues that you hear in the mix. Yeah. yeah. Do you do you follow uh, more or less Tony or do you follow Daryl and uh, Mike? It, it kind of depends, like, for, for which songs there, you know, a song like Home by the Sea, I, I'm definitely following Tony, you know, right. he, like I'm I'm driving the, the groove. But Tony's melodic stuff is is really what I'm kind of dialed into. But then there's some songs, you know, it, it just kind of, I guess, depends what the, the, you know, where the accent is coming from as far as like which instrument is doing what and which mm -hmm. instrument is doing the heavy lifting. Like Cinema Show, I have to be really locked in with Mike, for example, because that's, you know, the syncopated 12 string part, which, you know, you have to kind of really be locked in with that. But I, I would say that Tony is, is a big, you know, 
driving forces as far as like who I'm kind of really dialed into right. because, you know, there's so it's his parts are so complex and it's, you know, it, it, he's kind of like a freight train, you know, if he's going somewhere, like he's not going to stop and you better follow him. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's kind of like that. Yeah. yeah. But having said Daryl, Daryl, you know, he's basically the guy in the band who like knows every single song and never makes a mistake. So if, if you're confused, <laughs> you just look at Daryl and he, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. You know, Daryl's amazing. Not only does he know all of the Genesis stuff, he knows all of the Phil stuff. I mean, he, he probably knows like 300 songs. <laughs> the guy, I mean, yeah. he's, he's just, he's incredible. Yeah. Um, one last comment for me. And then one last question uh, during the song. I know what I like. Of course, your dad takes out the tambourine and does the stuff. That's the part that that is you know the heartbreaking because he's you know he, he he was he just wanted to do it for the fans even though you could tell that maybe there was physical pain and it's just it, it was incredible so um, is that hard for you to watch is that is that uh, pleasant to watch and go he's go 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 dead give it a shot or because yeah, I mean, right that's right right Charlie that's where it sort of broke down for both of us yeah that's where it hit me yeah that's all. I think it's a bit of both. I mean, like, there's part of me where, like, obviously, you know, I wish my dad, you know, like what happened to him, like his getting, you know, he had like surgery on his neck or his okay. back and, you know, basically fucked his foot up, you know, and, and I wish that like that didn't happen. You know, I wish that he could still play. You know, there was we tried, you know, running a few songs where he could, you know, he could play and he just didn't, you know, the thing that was hard for him is that, you know, he used to sit down on a drum set and that was like his kingdom, you know, like he, he went there and he was the man, you know? And so I think not being necessarily able to play like he used to, you know, it's hard for him. And I, and I think, you know, for a song, like I know what I like, it's a bit tongue in cheek as far as like him doing the tambourine dance. Cause obviously he can't do like the crazy acrobatics that he used to do. But, um, so I think there's definitely that kind of comedy side of it. And I, and I just think he, you know, he knows that that's like a, you know, what was an iconic part and right. he's just kind of, you know, he's doing it and you know just not trying to he's not trying to make it i think the thing is is if he was playing drums is he would know that he's not what he used to be and so i i think it's more for him to just like do it in this kind of different way um you know which is great to, to, to you know to see him enjoying himself and to see him really you know be able to relate to this music again after some you know know what i like is from like 1973 so to still be able to enjoy doing that after so long of doing it um you know, it's, it's just been great to see not only just, you know, on stage with him, but just seeing like my dad do that, you know, and just seeing him kind of be on stage. Because I remember when he retired, I, you know, all of all of our, you know, me and all my siblings were like, I don't know what you're doing, man, because that's kind of where you kind of should be, you know, huh. is, yeah. is, is up on stage. You know, that's kind of where you're yourself, you know, and um, so being able to see him do it and, you know, basically do the with and, and with his bandmates that he's been with, I think it's kind of cool that he's ending it with the people he started really, you know, um, which is just like a really awesome thing to see and to be able to share with them. Yeah. And, and I have one last question without, without ruining it for everybody, but as we get to these final shows, do we see some kind of special something at the last shows? Does Steve Hackett show up? Does Anthony Phillips show up? Does Peter Gabriel come out and do a song? It, it, are there plans? I mean, well, I suppose we'll stick to yes and no, not to ruin it, but are there plans for something special to happen? I don't know. As far as far as I'm concerned, at the moment, not really. But you never know. You know, okay. I, I'm sure since the last shows are in London, who knows? I mean, you know, I, I'm assuming Peter. I I don't really know Peter and Steve too well, but I'm assuming Peter and Steve also live in London. So 
you know, I, I wouldn't rule it out, but also at the same time, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like there's anything, you know, that's in the works. There's nothing because cooking, at right? Moment, at the moment, there isn't anything, you know what I mean? There isn't kind of any talks, but again, I don't know, you know. Well, yeah. maybe Charlie Benante will go out and play a, a drum solo with you. I mean, we could, we could, exactly. we could set that up. <laughs> yeah, Mitch could play Air Cowbell in the corner. Like, why not? <laughs> there you go. Um well, listen, ready. Yeah, we we got to wrap. I mean, geez, we went way longer than we were expecting. This is great. Uh, Better Stranger, what's going on with the the record and stuff? Like, when can we expect the new single to actually drop and get out there? Yeah, the new basically the new single is you know it's kind of in like the the final stages of uh, you know videos and cover art and 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 all that kind of stuff. So really, ideally, in the next few weeks, you know. Um, you know, staying tuned to the socials and I'm sure you'll hear an announcement soon. We're really excited to be putting this new stuff out. Um, you know, it's been a long time coming. Um, and just, you know, like I mentioned earlier, like dialing in the sound and, you know, getting more in depth and, and more, you know, comfortable with, with the song, with the songwriting and just like us as, you know, a four piece. So yeah, it's just, you know, it's exciting for us and hopefully in the next few weeks. Yeah. And, and having song. fun. That's the most important part. Yeah. Yeah, the new song is "But I Don't Know Your Name," which will be out soon. Uh, Charlie, you've had a chance to hear it. Any quick comments on it? Oh, I loved it. I thought it was really good. It had a uh, for me, it had a bit of a retro feel, but modern as well. Um, yeah. I just thought it was a really good song. Great melody and just great playing. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I'm always uh, uh, partial to the singing. I, if if you don't have a good singer, I'm out. And you've got a good singer, so mm-hmm. I, See, I'm, I'm the production guy. I heard the production. I'm like, oh yeah, good sound, good sound. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I don't care how good a song is. If the if you got a shitty singer, I'm out. But you don't have a shitty singer. He's you got a little a great bit more singer. cannonball snare, but uh, I'm good with this. I'm good with this. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Thank you, folks. Yeah, All right, appreciate that, guys. Thanks so much. Cool. Thanks. Thank you. It was so great to meet you. We'll uh, we'll chat soon. Yeah, great to meet you. Yeah, great to meet you too, Charlie. You know, hope to catch up. Yeah, man. I'll see you in Miami. Take care. (laughs) Cheers, everybody. Now back to the Mitch LaFon and Jeremy White Show. Hello, David. How you doing? Bonjour. Good to virtually meet you. Yes, absolutely. You too. Very excited. I listen. No, I'm I'm honored to have been asked, especially my wife, who doesn't usually work at home, is like back there somewhere and you can only imagine how bored she is of hearing every story i tell so uh it'll be a a chance for her to put her out of her marital misery david we're going to be your favorite wives i'll tell you that (laughs) (laughs) let's see the the last tweet said something about uh your wife finds you insufferable but i find myself sufferable Yes, that's the that's that's the I think that's what all marriages come down to or mine. <laughs> I'm just projecting. Oh, that's that's the best. Well, so what, you got a big dinner party going on tonight? No, no, a small dinner party. I just thought when you offered this time, I thought that's even more of a reason to have an excuse to not do anything to help. I wouldn't have done anything to help anyway. Yeah. It just, yeah. Everyone in the now, kitchen, but just now it comes their without right the guilt trip. Now yeah. it comes without the guilt trip later. That's actually not true. In that I did make a trip. I actually made two trips to find water chestnuts for oh. her. And you know, you would think I don't know if you have Trader Joe's in uh, Canada, but Trader yeah. Joe's did not have water chestnuts. So I, it was actually a series of trips. So, yeah, that's oddly specific. <laughs> yes, I'm going to get an Emmy for best water chestnut this year. <laughs> <laughs> Water chestnuts around here. You got to go to Chinatown. That's where you got to yes. go. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. all right. 
Well, look, uh, let's let's talk about this. I mean, you know, you're part of the Grammy Awards. I mean, you're one of the greatest music journalists of all time. The Grammy Awards happening on April 3rd, uh, of course. Um, you're the first person to feel that way, so thank you. It's like, apparently in Canada, I'm like, uh, you know, it's like... Uh, uh, I'm like a crowbar or Clatu. Uh, uh, I'm appreciated there. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I grew up, I was born in 94 and my, you know, which, but, which is frankly obnoxious. And I think, <laughs> but as a fan of the music, you know, from the seventies and eighties and nineties, I mean, you know, reading articles and reading reviews that you've done through the years. And like, I've always seen your name, like always pop up. And the fact that we follow each other on Twitter, I'm like, yeah, this this guy's kind of like he was the trendsetter for a good minute. I beg to differ. That I mean, the actual truth is what's funny. I I grew up on Rolling Stone magazine and really wanted to work there. And I got I was lucky. I got my first job at Esquire at a college. And then Jan Winter offered me a job. I don't think I was that good. And for years, I didn't think I was that good. And then about you know fifteen years. Well, actually, like after five or six years. I was moved out here to be the West Coast bureau chief, fell into TV. And I think in the end, I'm better at writing for other people. I, you know, that's really what I do is produce, uh, write and produce these TV shows for other voices. Cause I don't know if my voice was that strong. That being said, because of, uh, I think I finally paid the, whatever subscription it is to Rolling Stone so I can reread my own articles <laughs> pay for that privilege. And when I go back, I'm like, Oh, I wasn't as bad as I think I was. Right. That's hilarious. Hmm. That's kind of funny. Let me ask you, you this. You were so, well, hold on. I just want to, it's, it's odd that you were self-conscious because actually, you know what? It's not that odd because I think everybody in the media is so self-conscious of themselves. Like on the radio, I'm constantly going back and re-listening to myself and I'm like, oh, why did I say that? I can only well, imagine how many times. Yeah, Jeremy, I know when you say everyone in media, I know you mean Jews and yes, uh, as a rule. <laughs> Listen, uh, I, I'm a, I'm a native American. So I fall under the, uh, under the umbrella of minority. Well, I have no reservations about that. So I. Oh, oh well, I'm on one right now. So exactly good. No, no well, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think uh, the truth is I was really lucky and young in that I came. You know, I was uh, two years out of college when I was a music editor of Rolling Stone, so I had reason to feel that I didn't deserve it. I, I did not deserve it. I really got a series of lucky breaks. Uh, and I, but again, and also I was an editor, so I was in that weird position of right off the bat editing David Frick, Kurt Loder, you know, those, I, I walked into that uh, and I probably wasn't ready. And Kurt could, you know, David could tell you that. Uh, but I was, uh, yeah, again, I, I go back and like, that's the great thing about Twitter is I am confronted with articles I wrote 20 years ago. Yeah. And in a few cases I'm humiliated, but for the most part, I'm okay. Were those guys kind of like, uh, you know, who's this kid two years out of college and now he's editing us? Like, were they confrontational about it? Or like, what? There was a little edge to it. Now we're all friends, you know, like Kurt and I, you know, we're, 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 we're Twitter friends. Uh, but yeah, no, I think, I, listen, now I am clearly, I, I, I've always loved I, on your podcast so far, you guys, there's a little of that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. There's a little of the, uh, you know, I'm too old for this shit, age dynamic going on. So <laughs> you'll appreciate the fact that I now am, you know, entering my Clint Eastwood like I'm too old for this goddamn shit stage. So <laughs> I I know what it's like to resent uh, young, uh, young fucks. And, listen, uh, you know, oh, I'm sorry. I, I don't know if I should curse. I, I yeah, you not. can. But listen, it's it's eight o'clock at night. Look at the young gun. He's up and running and I'm I'm ready for nap time. 
<laughs> well, I just came off a live CHR radio show. I mean, of course, I'm still a ball of energy right now. <laughs> um, l- let me just quickly ask you know, about Rolling Stone. You know, growing up, I, I obviously looked at the magazine and it-, it went through some transformations, you know, from the 70s to the 80s to, to-, to-, to later on. Uh, was there a-, a-, a part of the editorial staff that would say, listen, we are just not going to cover certain bands, whether it's Kiss or whatever. Just say, we're not interested. They are not going to be in our magazine. We don't care how many albums they sell. Well, to put it in a little historical perspective, especially for Jeremy, who was born, you know, an hour and a half ago, uh, <laughs> I will tell you that I got there. I, I got, uh, I graduated college 84, worked at Esquire mm-hmm. 86. So I was there for sort of the just say no era of right. Rolling Stone. It was uh, maybe not... Uh, you know, they have been the romanticized 70s of Rolling Stone. And then, which when you go back, you know, part of it is true. And also part of it is everyone was so high and every article was so long that it wasn't all great. Uh, I was there when the magazine went from like, uh, it'd gone from like a newspaper kind of print thing to mm-hmm. a glossy magazine, but it exploded in terms of page count, which is part of the reason after like, eight years of editing, I was like, I don't want to, I want to write because I couldn't, the, I was, every issue was a 400 page special issue. Right. Uh, but uh, all of that being said, it, it was when I got there, like I've always just loved what I love. Like I know like Mitch, you're more, you know, well, actually you've always been broad and it sounds like you're broad in your taste, but you like a lot of hard rock and the, the sort of with well-written song type hard rock. I, I've always liked everything I, I, I have a bizarre, uh, I like music, you know, and I'm broad in my taste and I'm not ashamed. I have no guilty pleasures. So, for instance, right. like I got there my first week and Jan Winner walked down the hall and said, does anybody like Neil Diamond? This is like in 86. And I'm like, I was raised on Neil Diamond. He was my Jewish Elvis in Tenafly, New Jersey. My mom, eight track tapes. That was really on my carpools. I was raised on Neil Diamond, wrote a book about it and all that. So I said, yes, absolutely. And he goes, good, you're going out to LA to interview him because, and I believe the truth is he had donated to an anti, a gun control charity of Jan's and Jan was trying to do right by him. And I got the dream of a lifetime to go and spend like four days hanging out with Neil Diamond, which has turned into working with him for a lifetime up until, you know, we actually honored him with a Grammy Lifetime Achievement uh, Award. And uh, I booked Mickey Dolenz to sing I'm a Believer, you know, and then then Neil called and said, could I sing it with him? And I was like, that would be great. So I, he goes, I've never met Mickey Dolenz. And I was like, how could the guy who wrote I'm a Believer not have met Mickey Dolenz? Wow. They had never met. Uh, so we got to do a duet with them. The night the pandemic broke out, I was doing a benefit. Neil's last big performance ever was, you know, to, to, to date. So what's weird is all those, like, that was all came from Jan saying anyone like Neil Diamond. And to your question, I was the only one who answered yes. Wow. So it really was, you know, being having a taste for everything that really kind of gave you the opportunity. Had you just said, no, I only like uh, the Stones and that's it. Well, you wouldn't have gotten that. Yeah. Well, there was, you know, you pigeonhole I think, yourself. Yeah. I, I just don't have guilty pleasures and I don't like everything. I'm not saying that. I just in every genre, there's something I like, you know, my, and it's helped my life and career, like country music. I happened to my dad, my first concert was, uh, 
He took me and my mom and my brother and sister to see the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and Steve Martin, their opening act, Steve Martin. I'm like nine at Carnegie Hall. And so I was raised on, I love bluegrass music and I love country music. Yeah. Cut to my first year at the Grammys, which is 21 years ago now, exactly. Uh, I'm on stage talking to, or yeah, I'm talking to Brad Paisley, who was a new young guitar player, and wow. Dolly Parton, who he was playing with. And I'm talking country, and the director of the Grammys, Walter Miller, late, he died, uh, we lost him last year. He uh, he heard, like, he's in the truck listening to our conversation. He goes, he went up to me, he goes, you know country music? And I go, I love country music. He goes, you got to write the CMA Awards for me, which are like the country Grammys down right. here. Yeah, um, country yeah. music's biggest night. And I've been writing that for 20 years just because he overheard that conversation and realized I love country. So I, my love of music has helped me uh, pay for a couple tuitions. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that way. Let me just, uh, I, I was going to say, Mitch and I, we always describe it as music we like and music we don't. And yeah. I mean, I don't see genre. I just see good music. That's, yeah, and, that's, I, and, that's, and I agree. He said it too. And, and, and he's older than you. And, and my Twitter has to sort of focus on the hard rock because that's what I sort of knew, but it's not just what I love. But if I start posting about, you know, st you know, Stacy Q to a heart, I'm going to lose 10,000 followers. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 as much yeah. as I love Stacy Q, that little pseudo Madonna, I agree. I understand. Yeah. It's so funny. So, you know, I'm, uh, well, Mitch, it's an example. Look at me. I post about Lady Gaga or Shawn Mendes, and then I post about Van Halen and Motley Crue, and people are like, "What's going on in this Twitter page?" <laughs> exactly. So, so I, I stick to I stick to what people like. But I mean, you know, listen. All afternoon, I was listening to Peter Gabriel live, which which I never post about. So, um, I want to ask you: when you say you write for the CMAs, or you write for the Grammys, or you write for what exactly does that mean? Because when you write for a movie, it's a script, it's a dialogue. I, I mean, do you do you write out all the dialogue of everybody that's on the show that night? Do you write yeah, like is it is it all the copy like the sixty fourth annual Grammy Awards? Like you write all that? It, it is all of that. It's what the host. Wow. I, I work with. I've worked with every host from uh, the first year. I got a call three days before the Grammys twenty one years ago, and the Ken Ehrlich, then the executive producer for many years until like two years ago, a year and a half ago. Uh, he goes, "You want to write the Grammys?" And I'm like. You mean like this year's? Because it was Thursday and this was Sunday. They Whoopi Goldberg had dropped out as a host and John Stewart had come in. So literally, I drove down uh, to Staples Center, sat with, and in that case, it was like a last minute thing where it was John Stewart and his co-writers. Where it was me in a room with Jimmy Kimmel and Adam Carolla. That, that's and we worked on his host material, and then I went off with Ken and wrote everything for all the presenters, everyone else, and all those bumpers, like you, you know, the you know, all of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, but it, it can mean a lot of different things. Like at the Oscars, you know, there can be host writers and there can be twenty writers. But a lot, I've sort of had my career because as a music guy, I write, I've written tons not only music shows at all, I write a lot of non-music shows, but uh, I sort of, I guess I get to work a lot. I've gotten to work a lot the last, you know, 20 years because I'll write jokes. If they need jokes, I'll write the serious yeah. stuff. Uh, and a lot of it is just working with the great hosts. Like, uh, you know, I've been really lucky that way. We've had, you know, LL Cool J, uh, James Corden, uh, Alicia Keys, Trevor Noah, you know, and that's all great. And then, uh, it's writing a couple lines or jokes or long speeches for 
people. So, and it can be funny or it can be, yeah. So that's, that's what I do. I, it's not, yeah. People still, because I was a journalist, there's still people go, you write about it. And I go, no, no, I write the words. Now it's different in a live show because some people will go off script and then either I will get credit or blame for that. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, and I've gotten both. Did you get credit for the Bill Burr jokes or uh, did you get in trouble for them? Well, I've got the, the worst trouble perhaps richly deserved was I was one of the writers. Uh, I will go to my grave, no matter what I do, having been one of the writers on the James Franco and Hathaway Oscars. Uh-huh. So that's, that's where you, where I, I literally did call my wife from the show. I said, we'll survive this. Right. And she didn't answer. <laughs> like it was. Uh, and in fact, on the 20th anniversary uh, I was interviewed about it and it was really freeing because it's like, oh yeah, I guess I did survive that. But I, you know, yeah. on the other hand, there's like moments like 20, no, 10 years ago today that we're talking is when Whitney Houston passed away. That was LL Cool J's first time hosting the Grammys. We had just rehearsed an hour and a half earlier his entire hosting segment. And then we, I was standing on the floor and I believe it was like Coldplay rehearsing a number when we got the word Whitney had died. That meant I had to rewrite the monologue for LL and rewrite significant parts of the show. Ken Ehrlich had to get, you know, uh, Jennifer Hudson to do a, you know, a new version of the song. We changed elements throughout. So it's like live TV is a very intense, you know, medium. Uh, And, you know, yeah. so that's, that's the sort of thing that you, you have to learn over time how to handle that kind of stuff. When it comes to the script and the copy for the show, is there like a set like rules that you have to follow? Like, oh, you can't be offensive. You can't do this. You can't do that. Like, what do you don't mention the president, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Like, are you told anything going in? Well, I mean, you learn certain things and I don't want to get political here. Exactly. No, 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 no. But the truth is there were like uh, during the last administration, you really learned what it meant to have, uh, jokes that you shouldn't do. Uh, I will say that like, uh, like for, and, and what's interesting is like, there was, there were like 11 years where the host of the CMAs, which happened during election time, always, uh, it's a November, you know, kind of, uh, event. And, uh, when I, you know, there were like when Obamacare hit and it was not working well, you know, uh, we wrote a parody song, of a George Strait song, uh, instead of Amarillo by morning, we would Obamacare by morning. And all of a sudden, <laughs> the three, uh, Brad and Carrie and Robert Deaton and I, we were literally praised on Fox News as right wing heroes. And then uh, then like a year or two later, uh, one Trump joke, <laughs> which didn't say his name, nearly got all of us killed. So oh. it's like and, and, and interestingly, it's like what I actually love about what I do is I'll, I've worked with groups, including that group, where there are very different political views, even within a close knit group of people working on it, my host and myself. But we agree on what's a good joke. And then you sort of but I will say that the political like it used to be kind of nice years ago when you could just do a Kanye West joke and it would be all OK. But now, yeah, you know, now there's such a divided Sort of, uh, it, yeah. Things are so tense; you never know when you're going to hit on something. Whoopi Goldberg just got in, you know, big trouble for something, and she twice defended like a joke I did. Uh, I'm thinking of one on the CMAs where, like, 
uh, we were preempting uh, Modern Family and Blackish. So I wrote a joke, which was just uh, a modern love uh, and blackish will not be seen tonight. So you can see whitish, you know, which uh, <laughs> and, and uh, it got a big laugh and it was a joke on the whiteness of the show. Right. Uh, and but it, you know, then you get like some, you know, people freaked out. And then Whoopi Goldberg, I will say, I will, I will always love her because she went on the next thing. And she goes, I don't care what color you are. That's the greatest joke. Of, you know, <laughs> but you sort of. It, the the ability to tell those jokes it's harder and harder and thank yeah. God like last year we had Trevor Noah and you know he's really great and really smart and he doesn't need me to tell him how to walk lines but uh, yeah it's difficult especially when you don't have comedians and they want to be you know non comedians want to tell jokes that's a that can be tough. Yeah, that can be really tough. Uh, just uh, speaking of tough and somewhat in the political thing, but not to be political, you did America a tribute to heroes. And I have the CD right here in front of me. Oh, my God. I don't see that CD enough. In fact, yeah, that's that. I love that CD. But but just yeah. let me just quickly ask you, what was that like to write for that? Because it was a very heavy moment. And one wrong word could, could probably just end your career because everybody was on. You know, we were all tense and nervous. And what, what was that like that that moment? I want to thank you for asking about that, because that's the show that really determined my whole life path in that that's the I had written the way it happened was Rolling Stone had a TV special in like 1994 called like Rolling Stone, the year in review. And I was the interviewer for a bunch of the interviews off camera for obvious because you're seeing my face. There's a reason for me to be off camera. (laughs) But the producer of the show, Joel Gallen, thought I made a like Steven Spielberg and a few of the other interviews to Howard Stern. I got them to laugh. So he goes, you're, you're funny, which again, I know you agree to disagree. My wife thinks not, but I, I think I am. Uh, um, but uh, as a result, he goes, why don't you come write the MTV awards, be on the team. And I walked into a room and that was, I think the first year I wrote on him. That's like the first time I wrote for TV and it was Bob Odenkirk Louis C.K., you know, Chris Rock, that, you know, and and by the way, you know who it's hard to throw a joke in with that company, but you eventually you you try or you learn uh, very, very quickly. But he, Joel Gallen, was the executive producer of Tribute to Heroes. And he called me. He got a call. uh, 9-11 was on a Tuesday. uh, And I believe Friday. 9-11 is my dad's birthday. So I have a very strong attachment because... Oh no, I'm 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 sure. It, yeah. what, it, so what happened is he called on a Friday and said, "There's going to be a telethon," and my wife picked up first and heard this and said, "Wow, that seems like a terrible idea." And she said, "This is not about celebrity. This is not about." Uh, and if you actually watch the DVD of it or online. I basically took what she was saying as a reason not to do the show and made that was Tom Hanks opening speech about what the show was. And that's why I said it's a trip. This is a tribute to heroes, which is what it it became. And in that case, uh, that was the most over. And I uh, drew together a team in that case, you know, of you know, political writers, uh, Phil Rosenthal has become one of my closest friends. and we we just sort of, you know, in fact, the most, uh, I, I, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot because it was 20 years and I just did a sort of 20th anniversary show for CNN this past year where we sort of uh, 
and I worked with the families and it all came back to me, but it was very powerful. I had just by pure coincidence won a Muslim Public Policy Award 2001 early with Cat Stevens for a documentary uh, I interviewed him for and worked with him on. So there was a, in the early days after 9-11, I wanted to write something about, because there was already some violence against, uh, you know, those of the uh, Islamic faith. Mm. And I, so I wrote a speech which ended up being for uh, Muhammad Ali and uh, uh, Will Smith. And, uh, uh, and that was written by Phil Rosenthal and I, you know, and and the weird story about that is just how writing for TV is a weird art. Uh, I, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I, it was just an amazing moment. I don't want to I, I don't want to bore you with stories of it, but it was that that oh, got an Emmy, fascinating. That, yeah, that got an Emmy nomination. And it really is the reason people started asking me to write other things. So that. uh it was a benefit. It wasn't, I didn't get paid, but I just ironically looking back, that's really what made me a TV writer. So you're really not just sitting there writing tonight, the biggest names in music come together. Like it's, you're really like writing some heavy shit. Yeah. But I mean, that was a very special, special, if I can put it that way. Yeah. And, and I can imagine that as a writer, as a performer, one wrong word and America would have just said, screw this guy well i don't want to deal with him he's anti-american like it, it must have been super on intense to just be yeah. perfect the be actual, on point yeah no no and the actual thought it's funny the media world has changed so much this was yes. pre-zoom but i do remember my motivating thought was and having you know won the muslim public policy award that year i really did think about someone in the middle east a kid if they were to see this in a cave somewhere who had been taught to hate America, how do we explain what we are? And that was, there were certain things that like, and I use certain tricks, if I can call them tricks that I use to this day, like for instance, uh, Robert De Niro was going to say, you know, I, I, I said, I gave him the four freedom speech. Like I went to great speeches in uh, American history with the, the speak with a speech for Muhammad Ali. I reached out to, uh, Yusef Islam, Cat Stevens, and some other people. And I really tried, you know, it was kind of like that was, there were not a lot of jokes in that. I do remember, because eventually we went on and did a few of these telethon events. And I remember like the third one we did, I think there was one joke for Chris Rock because it was a different, you know, but in that moment, it was literally just trying to, how do we make a show that, if it's seen, will explain who we are in a way better than these terrorists had. Right. Wow. Listen, it's uh, it, it's a package that I, I treasure, and I actually, I have it out because I actually listened to it uh, the other day. I was listening to the uh, versions from John Bon Jovi and and uh, Alicia Keys and stuff because there's there's unique versions on it which are great. The John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora living on a prayer is phenomenal. I'll tell you uh, one story about that album is that. Uh, so Joel, yeah, Joel called me on that Tuesday. One of the first things he said was uh, he knew he knew already at that Tuesday, a few of the artists who had said they'd be a part of it. And he goes, what should so and so do? And I do remember one of them was he said, what should Stevie Wonder do? And I'm a if you look at my uh, uh, Twitter, it's like Stevie Wonder is my it's a picture of me. It's a Stevie Wonder. picture. 
Yeah, he he's my he's one of the most important people, you know, in my he I just grew up on him and love him. And he's been the greatest guy to work with when he when he appears on shows. He makes me be the guy talking to a microphone because he's not reading prompter. Unlike most stars, he has to. It's an audio thing. So I'm, right. I have to read or sing what he's going to say to him backstage. And so but in any case, cool. I, I remember, uh, Joel said, what should Stevie Wonder do? And I literally just off the top of my head, because unlike I bet at least one of you probably alphabetizes your albums. I never have. So when yeah. I got this call, I'm like, I couldn't find my copy of Songs in the Key of Life. But I said, he should do a song called Love's in Need of Love Today. And if Mitch, if you play that song, you know, after we're done, mm-hmm. yep. it was the most uncanny thing that lyrically that song, and I had no memory of this, and I didn't realize it until Stevie came in, but it, it shows you how the subconscious works. That lyric from 1976, I think, explains 9-11. It literally, it, it, it is the moment of the telethon, because it's literally a, a, a newscaster coming on saying, it looks like the world is ending, but we have to send our love in right away. It is, it's like wow. if he had written it for that event, and I didn't know that on any conscious level, but it was so meaningful to me that when we did the CNN show this past September 11th live, I, Jake Tapper hosted it, and mm-hmm. we had her, and we had uh, Maroon 5, and we had um, my friend Brad Paisley, and we had uh, uh, Common, I think were the artists, but her agreed she asked for she did one song she wanted to do and she goes what what's one you want to do and i said would you do loves in need of love today and i it's it, it was just as good as stevie which is hard that's a very high high, high praise yeah absolutely yeah and i'll go listen to it yeah because it's, it's it, i know i was listening to it the other day and i was just like you know it brings me back to my dad's birthday and i had taken the day off and then I, the events and and then i saw this thing when it when it ran live and it was just like Wow, who knew it could have such an impact? I'm I'm sitting right where that day there was like the LA Times, there was a story which said where it was being done at CBS Television City. It was actually done in New York at Sony, I think it was, and here in LA. Mm. And my wife, like the world was so scary at that moment that they there was she was afraid they would bomb where we were because of all the stars the of the world were there. And she goes, I forbid you to go there. And I said, I'm not going to the Middle East. I'm going to CBS Television City. It's the only time I think I have not <laughs> listened to my wife. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I'm glad in that case I, I did not listen. Jeez. Yeah, it, was, it was a moment. I mean, uh, Jeremy, you were, I mean, seven. So I don't I don't yeah. think it had the same impact for you. But well, I remember, you know, honestly, I mean, yeah, I was like seven years old. But I remember it happening and seeing it on TV and watching it on CNN. Because we had the uh, we had the pirated cable in uh, in Gunawaga. we were able to get all the American channels. I'll tell you one crazy story about it, which and again, you tell me. I, I'll shut up and listen. Actually, answer questions after that. Right. But yeah. the most amazing thing about that telethon, and the reason I believe it raised, I think it raised two hundred twenty-five million right away that night, which you know for the families. And the reason I believe that happened is I sat in an office at CBS Television City, little office, George Clooney sat outside my office on the floor and literally ran copy. That's how helpful and amazing he is as a person and how he's just that kind of guy. But I went out and looked outside at one point and Brad Pitt and, and Clooney are sitting outside my win, my office on the floor. Uh, and 
they, we walked in to talk to Joel Gallen and George goes, uh, Brad would like to be on the show. At which point, uh, amazingly, Joel Gallen had to say, I'm sorry, because we're on every network. Every network has already picked what star they want to be on the show. So we don't have any more room. At which point, George and Brad came up with the idea. I think really George came up. He goes, why don't we have a celebrity phone bank where we can just answer, take the donations? And so that was a total sort of last minute idea. And I'll never forget being in the director's, you know, production studio space at CBS Television City. And Joel goes, go check out the telethon room, see how it looks. And I walked into this room and literally every star in the world is sitting in one room. This is before social distancing. So it's like Jack Nicholson is here, you know, and Brad Pitt here. And it was amazing because the phone calls were starting to come in and it'd be like Sally Field would go, uh, they want to talk to you, Jack, and have to hand the phone up. <laughs> and, and I honestly believe that became the model for all the telethons. That was really the mm-hmm. first of those big sort of tragic. Uh, Phil Rosenthal, who I just was on a Zoom with, said we became the tragedians. We were doing telethons for every tragedy. And it was like, and we're a close knit group. So it was like, we, you know, we in some weird level look forward to tragedy because we got to spend time together. Uh, but that I'll, I'll, that will always be the most special show I ever worked on. Yeah, fantastic wow. show. Um, I have one question for you uh, in terms of being from, you know, a writer and Rolling Stone and you, you know, sort of the business and the industry. These days, a lot of artists are selling their catalogs to different music groups. Yep. Um, right now, there's no sort of impact because they're just selling it. But what do you think it's going to look like 20 or 30 years down the road when you have one or two or three entities basically owning every single catalog? Is this something to look forward to? Is this a sign of the apocalypse? What do you think that means for the business? I think it's both. I think that uh, one thing that no one has ever said out loud that I've heard is I think part of this is happening because a the pandemic hurt certain budgets and certain artists were paying for their bands or taking big hits and the tax code in America you know got very good for the rich so it the you know during the last 4 years so i think a lot of people are ironically cashing out before the tax code changes um what it's going to mean for the art i don't know i've been sort of moved i joked about not knowing i'm a big canadian like you know, some of my favorite artists are Canadian or uh, uh, or ca- Canadian adjacent. Rocking my Shania Twain shirt right now. Oh, uh, listen, I don't know if you've ever had. I'm the biggest Pursuit of Happiness fan uh, in, in in history. That's a that's a rocking Canadian band that I don't know. Jeremy is basically not an adult yet. Okay, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Not now. Um, but in any case, uh, I don't know what it's going to do to the. I I I, I suspect it'll be. It's easier for someone else to exploit your songs than it is for you to. So, and I'm sure there'll be some ads we don't like, but there already are some ads we don't like that way. Right. It's just going to be strange to have everything in like three or four hands. You know, three or four hands controls all the music. Well, I mean, to be fair, it's already been like that for quite some time between the three major labels. I mean, Universal, Sony, and Warner. I mean, I guess. It's interesting. I just, you know what? My feeling is. Primarily, I buy records constantly. Yesterday, I was at Amoeba, which is you know the giant store. Yeah, I love Amoeba. I've been there. I've been there. Uh, and I buy I buy records 
of all my friends, you know, I I bought 10 records this week. Don't let my wife hear that because I, I like the idea of artists getting paid. I, during the pandemic, yeah. tried to make a point to go to people's websites, buy merch. Like I'm a man because of my hairline. I need a lot of hats. Right. Uh, and I bought, you know, now this is, I bought from Pearl Jam on their Ohana festival. They don't need the money as much, but I did. I think it's, a, you know, that's again, I, I like direct support of artists because Trusting Spotify to pay him is not. Uh, not I'm great. with you. I have no streaming. I have no streaming available. And I bought, I'm looking at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, about 12 albums this week. So. Well, I'll tell you, that's interesting that you might find interesting. And I think people don't know this. I actually worked, I do have Apple Music. And I worked on the launch of Apple Music for five months with Jimmy Iovine and Trent Reznor. They brought me in to help with the various, in various projects but i i was in the room and watched trent Reznor. now listen i'm not saying he didn't get paid but trent was the most sincere person i ever worked with and he 100 percent in rooms i was there when he would get up and go i'm standing up here for artists and artists you know he stood up for artists to get paid and he stood up you know for artists to be respected and he he directly told me that there was not an interview we were like you know, people in the trenches of that, like for four months together. And he was there for that reason. And, and I think that's a difference. I don't, I don't think Spotify had that. They didn't have a Trent Reznor. Well, uh, yeah. My, my, my objecting to Apple music is not that part is that in the beginning, and I don't know how it is now, but when they first launched it, it would go through your catalog and identify songs. And so I, I would have like five different versions of whatever living on a prayer but it would put the Spotify or, or it would put the Apple Music version so that it would call up quicker. So it was replacing the A Tribute to Heroes one with the album. And it's like, no, don't, don't Listen, F with don't my worry. catalog. I'm working. Your refund is already coming through. I just did. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so that's why that's why I had to go. No, don't do that. I have like bonus sides and B sides and demos. Don't be. Yeah, he specifically bought the Japanese bonus track version to get that version, and then it ruined. <laughs> yeah. And oh, then Apple would, yeah. would was replacing, it, and I was like, mm. I don't understand what's happened to my iTunes library. I don't even understand that. That you know, it's, I, yeah. I have so I've adjusted to. I love streaming, and for research, you know, like I did. Yeah. I, I just finished this book, helping Ringo, which is out now, and you can people can order it. But for that, I had the excuse to spend a lot of like the late fall and January, because the Grammys got postponed, listening to Beatles. And it's a lot easier to just hit play all Beatles or play the complete yeah. Yeah, yes, that's true. put on records all day. Uh, and so I, I do see the upside of it. I just want to make sure that artists who aren't the Beatles can make a living. It's the, yeah. it's the convenience of it. Yes. Yeah, it, it, it's very convenient. I, I just, I'm a big collector of bonus tracks and demos and B sides. And when it started, yeah. you know, substituting them, I was, it, it was like, oh, but not only that, I mean, you know, if God you listen mercy. to the, uh, the master for iTunes versions compared to the CD version and the overprocessing that would happen to it or the stream would, if you had a bad internet connection, it'd be a low stream. And now you've got Apple lossless and it takes more yeah. data, but it still sounds better. Oh, listen, liner notes, my, my wife will tell you that, like, it's not the best paying thing I've ever done. Although I think if it's the lights fading here, I could turn on the lights, but that's Frank Sinatra behind me. And back in the day, I wrote the liner notes for Sinatra for his duets record and bought my engagement ring for my wife with that. He paid me enough to buy an engagement ring just wow. to write the liner notes. But now it's like liner notes and I still write them. Like I just finished like tons for Fleetwood Mac for their last like 20 reissues and all that. Mm. 
but we're in a world where there are no lyric sheets or no liner notes. That's depressing to me because I'm, I was raised studying liner notes and, yeah. you know, a lot of people are my friends are the people who I read about in liner notes. Like uh, uh, John Mayer was playing here like two nights ago and Greg Fillingaines, who I work with on a bunch of these TV shows is like Stevie Wonder's keyboardist and like played with Steely Dan, played with uh, Toto, you know, all. And, but like, I, I realized that's amazing when you have people who've gone from your liner notes that you read as a kid to your friend. That's a great yes, thing. That, that is. Yeah. And look, I mean, even me before like streaming and everything, I was already buying CDs. I mean, I remember going get Shania Twain's up when it came out in 2002 and opening up and reading. I'm like, oh, who's this guy, Mutt Lang? And oh, who's this guy, Mike Shipley? And then going and like doing research and like, you know, people don't have that kind of they don't have that anymore unless you really physically go buy it but even that it's the digi packs they don't have the actual liner notes in it the credits engineers i mean it's nerdy shit but are you now you really are a big shania twain fan right i'm a huge is. shania twain fan okay, Lang is like my god i i worked with her actually on that uh, i wrote a speech for her at that benefit but i also i worked did a tv show she did here in america a couple of years ago called real country i consulted on it and i had the most amazing discussion because she's She's so beautiful. You know, she's such a big global star. I had a dinner with her and her sort of co-judges who were uh, Travis Tritt, who I don't know wow. if you're familiar with I Travis. I met Travis Tritt. He played in my town a couple of years ago. And J and Jake Owen. They were the judges. Wow. And we had a, the first dinner, get to know you dinner. And all I can tell you is at, at one point, Shania said, to, to called Travis Tritt, because you're a socialist about some point he made. And I'll never forget Travis Tritt's eyes rolling going lady i've been called a lot of things in my life but i've never been called a socialist and when <laughs> you know, and during the last couple of years when he was like you know fighting covid restrictions i thought yeah, yeah not probably not a socialist probably not a socialist coming from yeah, the right. canadian in canada it's a compliment in america in the south it was not apparently it's like how dare you <laughs> that's, a, that's, exactly. that's a big insult Yes. Um, I have one just one question about again Rolling Stone and how it relates to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame being in the in the hallways there and at the at the water cooler when the names like Foreigner or Iron Maiden and stuff come up there you know they should probably be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame but is there like you know five guys in the back room going, these fuckers are never getting in just, uh, <laughs> just never getting in my relation I am a voter and have been a voter I think since the beginning right. uh, and I went to the first Rock Hall dinner and so I, and I've written speeches for it, but I'm not, I've never been, maybe because I'm out here, I've never been part of that nominating committee. I've never been in the back room. So I'm not the guy to answer that. I am a guy who agitates all the time for exactly what you're saying. Like, I think it's insane that like they're moving on into like bands from, you know, this era without yeah. acknowledging band, like Foreigner, like, uh, again, First five albums were top five. We just <laughs> lost Ian McDonald, you know, who King Crimson and, and Foreigner yesterday. And uh, mm -hmm. I, and on a very different musical level, I will admit, I mentioned Mickey Dolan's earlier. I, I, I love the monkeys. I didn't, I'm in all these Beatles shows and I just did the book with Ringo. I didn't, I'm not, even I am not old enough to remember the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, but I did watch the monkeys in the eighties when they were on MTV and fell in mm -hmm. love with them and the monkeys are not in. And so for the last like 
on Twitter, I'm con- for years I've been going, please, while there's still three of them alive, please, while there are two of them alive. And now it's just Mickey and it drives me nuts. It drives me nuts. But uh, I don't have, I only can, I wish they had a write in. I just, but I vote for whoever's, you know, I choose from the nominees. Yeah. Talking about rock and uh, I was going to say, talking about rock and talking about the Grammys, uh, there's there's always constant criticism of the Grammys around Grammy time when it comes to the rock scene. Oh, once again, the Grammys is neglecting rock bands, barely any bands up there. They got the token Foo Fighters on stage again. Whoop-de-doo. Talk about rock and the Grammys. Is there really a neglect there? Is it a concerted effort to say, you know what, they're not mainstream enough? Or is it just that the music isn't good enough? Well, I would I would never say it's not it's not that the music is not good enough. It is that there are trends about what is dominant in the culture. And mm-hmm. I am a rock guy. I mean, in, in in a broad sense, but that's the core of what I listen to. Uh, it's very important to me. I I understand some of the criticism. Some of it is completely inappropriate and and just not true. Like last year, like Eddie Van Halen was a friend of mine. I wrote a cover story on him. I worked with him on a book that he wanted to do at one point. I saw him a year before he died. I was at the house. I loved him. He told me how great Wolfgang was. When he passed, we just, again, that's an example. We were criticized for only showing a film clip of him doing Eruption. And you week. had the Frankenstein on stage, I think. And yes, which that was, and I will say that was my push and what happened was we went and said to the family, to the estate, what we had, we gave them, we have these people who could perform something. If Wolfgang wants to do something, he can do that. Tell us what you would, what you would be comfortable with. Cause that was, you know, and, and again, he was a guy I knew and really liked yeah. and who was great to me. They said no one should perform it. You know, that was a very, Absolutely. There was not like they wanted to say only if you can get so-and-so it was, they didn't want anyone. So we had to find video. And just to show you how tough this stuff can get, there is very little footage of Van Halen. They, they did not exploit their catalog barely at all. There was not that many video releases. I literally had to personally research that the us festival, which was one of the heights of their, you know, mm-hmm. uh, them at their height. Yeah. I had to find out now that the us festival is was only available for like an hour and a half on something. We had to find the rights to use. And I wanted to use eruption because it was the family's desire not to have something with a vocal to choose Sammy or who's a friend or yeah. David, who I knew for a while. And who's a, you know, I, those are showcase who, Edward. Yeah. It was the showcase Edward. So that's what we did. And yet there was criticism and it was frustrating to me. I will tell you, I'm not good friends with them, but I know Eddie Trunk and we, you know, we're friendly and knowing that people might think that I personally sent him a private message on Twitter, just so you know, this was the family's wishes that it be. And he of course completely (laughs) ignored that. And I think led the sort of charge on attacking the Grammy. So I'm not, we are not above criticism. I, I am often the guy pushing, like, you know, and not all, you know, whether it's my first idea I ever had working on the Grammys, this was like 18 and hundred years ago, was when uh, when Joe Strummer from The Clash died, I and Ken Ehrlich, I but I suggested that we do London Calling with Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> with uh, Elvis Costello, uh, with, you know, the guy from No Doubt, with Little Steven, 
And from that to ACDC, some of my happiest moments were rock and roll bands. And obviously, but the, the reality is, who do you put on uh, that has the sort of mainstream uh, TVQ appeal? And right. often that's why people rightly say, why is it always the Foo Fighters? And it's because the Foo Fighters have carried that flag rather well. And Absolutely. they have that tied to Nirvana. You know, it's like literally part of the lineage of the rock, you know. So it's a complicated issue. And I'm not happy. I wish there was more. Uh, but it's not. But when people say the Grammys hate rock and roll, believe me, that is not true. Well, but, and, and let's, let's, to be fair, fans are very forgetful because coming through the 80s when we had the big hair metal and all that, there was a lot of rock and you were being criticized for not having any rap artists on or not having enough. And then, and then rap took over and then, you know, it's cyclical. The stuff, what's hot is hot and what's not is not. It's just that way. And, and we seem to forget in the eighties, you didn't really focus on the rap and then it took over. And now you do. It's, it's just the way life goes. Well, one of the things that I'm, I was just talking about this with a friend today that <clears throat> one of the things I feel lucky about is my career has been a little weird. I was a journalist. I'm now a producer and a writer. And I literally today have interviewed and been interviewed. I, you know, uh, and being on all sides of the chain is a good thing because you learn how hard it is to do anything. Like everybody, and it was, I found it at Rolling Stone when like, I remember years ago, uh, there was a, you know, there were like, then you had to write a letter to the editor. And I remember once, like we put Bruce Springsteen on the cover, which we did all the time, to be fair. I'm from New Jersey. Uh, but uh, someone wrote it and goes, I wrote, I wrote you two years ago saying I wanted to interview Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> and it's like, okay. It's like, who are, no, no one who'd ever written. And it's like, they didn't. And, and that was, but that was as much criticism as you could get would be a letter from the editor. But in the new social media universe, no matter what you do, it is the, the, there's no one gets attention for saying this was a pretty good show. <laughs> like yeah. our Grammys last year got great reviews and we, because we had to adjust to COVID and we created a little community where, you know, but that's about the only time I have, I don't think there was much hate. Now there weren't as many viewers because of the nature of what TV is happening to TV in the last couple of years, but we, 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 we got Emmy nominated we lost. Mm -hmm. which that's sort of my regular. Uh, I'm I'm the Susan Lucci of. Uh, I, I won I won one last year, but I, I I'm really one of the great losers in Emmy history. Wow. That's great. So that's what funny. do you what do you think we could do to get more rock on the Grammys? Um, buy more rock albums. <laughs> you know? And yeah. find a compelling rock artist. And uh, find a good artist. But like, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like you, uh, you had the interview with Wolfgang, like. Mm -hmm. He's totally on my radar, and it's so yeah. Well, he's nominated it, this year, I think. So yeah, he is. He is nominated, and no one. I've brought him up, uh, and I will continue to bring him up because, and it's literally uh, uh, not that many miles away from here. I the last time I saw Eddie, he came up to me. I didn't. I was, I was not expecting to see him. I was at his house, and he walked in, and he said, "David, you will not believe Wolfgang's record." Now, this was it was not remotely. You know, it was still they were trying to figure out the release and. The, mm -hmm. you know, the, but he was he was saying he said because what he said to me is I don't know how you get music out to people anymore because it's so impossible because you are going to love this it is so this kid is my kid is so great and he was right you know like 
And it's going to take a few more transcendent artists because you know this, but I don't know if Mitch and I know this as much, like as much as I love the Foo Fighters, they're now a very veteran band. And yeah, they're, they're kind of old. classic rock. They're right. kind of classic, classic rock. rock. But I'm glad like people like you doing a show with like this tour with Wolfgang, like in, you know, in another rock band, you know, that there's, mm-hmm. but the rock community has to come together and, and that's, I like, that's what uh, Eddie Trunk does. And people, I, I think those of us who love rock and roll need to beat the drums loudly because we need drums and guitars. And uh, I think today I saw just now, I think it's National Guitar Day or something, someone told me. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, and I, I don't want to see that become a uh, irrelevant holiday. Right. That's it. Well, look, I mean, on the podcast, I interview all the rock guys because A, I'm a fan, but B, my day job is that I'm a hot ACCHR jock in Canada's two largest cities. So I'm interviewing David Guetta and Sean Mendez as my day job. But then on my side thing is I talk to Wolfgang Van Halen and talk to Paul Stanley and talk to the rock guys because I wouldn't be able to talk to them or interview them for the pop station. And that's why I say I I like it all. I see. I think, I mean, this is a bigger message, but it's something... I feel lucky in my life, and what, from what you're saying, I think you you should feel lucky about this. Talking to a range of people is probably the problem with the world today. That we have, whether when radio gets so segmented and when TV, that's one thing I love about the Grammys. I love the CMAs. And that's the country community, and it's gotten more broad and more diverse. And yeah. thank God for that. I love that. But I do think, like, to be able to, like, I'm. Like, I think a, four years ago, there was one day when I was working with the Pope on his I did the Pope's Madison Square Garden event and then got a call from Justin Timberlake for a TV show speech. And I'm saying that's what I like about life, talking to the Pope and and, and Justin Timberlake. That's and that's I think and that's served me well in my life is that like I work with rappers, I work with oh. politicians, I've written for presidents and I've written for, you know, punks. And th- by talking to everyone and working with everyone, you get a much healthier view of the world than you do by only talking to like yes. you know, only talking to the heavy metal community, only talking to a rap community. And what I fe- what I love most about the Grammys is every like the mutual respect you it's a it is a community like you will see a rapper run over to Ringo like last year I begged Ringo to come to the Grammys because we had no one over 50 on the show it was pre-vaccine really being out and about so we did it was a it was a great bill but it was very young and we needed someone with some history to present one of the last awards like and you if you watch that Billie Eilish and her brother who are younger than you maybe uh, yeah, I think we're the same. I think I'm the same age as Phineas. But Could they be. went nuts yeah. for Ringo, and it was a beautiful yeah. thing. And the biggest trend was Ringo is 80. That was the 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 big trend that <laughs> night at the Grammys. And uh, the yeah, the the, the funny story is he literally. Uh, I had written a Jerry Maguire letter, letter in the middle of the night saying, "Will you come and present the award? You, all you have to do is drive to the convention center parking lot. You hand the Grammy out. You wave at me, and you're home in an hour." And he said, "I'll do it." When he got there, I got this text going, "David, they want me to come up." And I'm like, "What?" <laughs> He's like, "He thought he could do a drive-through Grammys. He it was so weird in that world." Oh, that he thought he could drive. He, he thought it was like a vaccination. He was just going to put his arm out and hand it to me. And I said, no, no, you got to go up the stairs oh, and, and walk out on the stage and give it to Beyonce <laughs> or Billie Eilish or whoever. And he walked to the side of the stage with Barbara Bach, his Bond wife, beautiful wife. Mm-hmm. And, and he goes, 
I didn't get dressed up enough. I thought I was going to be in the car. And, and I go, you look great. And I would have said that even if he didn't, but he looked great. He looked casual. Great. And he went out and my wife, the first text I got was Ringo looks amazing. And then I saw Twitter 10 seconds later, Ringo is, looks amazing. And then it went. It was- so that's wow. the, the world is such a strange and sometimes wonderful place. That Listen, Ringo doesn't have to look like anything. He's just Ringo. He just has to oh. show up and I'm happy. Right. And I hope you're, if, if there's any Beatles fans out there, the book I just did with him, it's out. Uh, you can get it. It's called uh, Lifted. Uh, uh, I can give you the real title if you want it. It's, uh, yes. uh, you, you can look, it's like fab images and story, uh, memories in my life with the Beatles from across the universe or something like that. And uh, it's out. You go to juliansauctions.com and you can buy it. It's like a special coffee table book. But you can buy a signature version for $495 or a cheap edition. Yeah, Uh, I got uh, it right here. Limited edition commemorative hardcover book and exclusive signed editions by Ringo Starr. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Lifted fab images and memories in my life with the Beatles from across the universe. Right. So I got to spend part of my pandemic year at his house in a mask, you know, looking through Beatles pictures. That was good. Wow. It's been a big year for the Beatles. I mean, that doesn't suck. The Disney no. doc and the book, like, yeah. Did, you, did both of you watch it get back? I, I, I watched it, yeah. Uh, I loved it. And it, it I think it re-energized his, because for 30 years now, he's been telling me, uh, David, we always loved each other because we fought like we were brothers at times, but we were always loved each other. And let it be, I don't know if you're, I don't know if either of you, it's been hard to see for many decades. It is a miserable movie. They look mm-hmm. like they hate each other. And I believe when you watch the Disney doc, you see why. Because I think the director yeah. had such a hard time with them. And he was such an ass, in my opinion, that right. he made a movie that was as miserable as he must have been. And yeah. it was almost and, like he was being forced to be there. And then in turn, yeah. it got of deflected off to, onto the band and they acted the same way. Yeah. Well, And to his credit, they broke up by the time he was finishing the movie. So I guess it was appropriate to make a it wasn't yoko that broke up the beatles it was that director <laughs> yeah i think that uh, so, though yoko just sitting there knitting was was a little bit weird i mean well, come on. I'll, I'll tell you the, the <laughs> thing that was really magical to me is i met my wife uh and then three weeks later went on the road with paul and linda on her last tour before she got ill mm-hmm. and three weeks uh, when we were in central South America, she goes, are you, uh, do you have a girlfriend? And I'm like, I just met a girl. And she goes, I want to meet her. So when we got back to the States, she goes, bring her to a dress rehearsal, sound check, and then we'll have lunch. So she came wow. to, she came to giant stadium, watched a good third date and watched Paul do this. And then we had <laughs> lunch, a vegetarian lunch in catering. And then she pulled me aside. She goes, David, do you think I know about marriage? And I went, yeah, you clearly know about marriage. She goes, Marry that girl right away. So literally, Linda McCartney, not only like she gave me a portrait that I could use in my books, but she also gave me a wife. So it's very, she's wow. very, uh, and she bestowed. When you watch yeah, that yeah. movie, I was stunned. To see, I'd never seen her on film that young. And she was so beautiful in that. Like, it was so great to see her again because she was, she was a beautiful person her whole life. A great person. Look, David, if you took me on a date, sound check, Paul McCartney dinner, I, I would have been putting out. Come on. Listen, it could, it could happen. My wife is listening and annoyed right now, so I, I'm not a viable option. Oh, man. Well, yeah. look, jeez, uh, this is awesome. I mean, I think this is the first conversation of many because this is way too much fun. 
Yeah, so many stories. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I know, geez, we're gone almost an hour. Talk about this podcast you and Phil are working on. That, I'm sorry. Well, hold on. When are you airing this? Uh, It'll air probably in the next couple of weeks. Okay. Because it's going to be announced Tuesday. So, okay. Right. It'll be after Tuesday. Yeah, it'll be after Tuesday. Um, Yeah. um, Basically, uh, after having been on every podcast, (laughs) yeah, I'm a podcast fan and I love doing them, but like, been talking about doing one for years and this is going to be one uh we're doing um uh with stitcher and it's basically come comes out of the fact that uh even during the pandemic for the last like 30 years or 20 years phil and i have been having lunch regularly like just and occasionally bringing he'll bring a comedian he'll bring ray romano or i'll bring his show uh, somebody feed phil was fantastic on netflix they came to montreal and did a whole episode here Oh, Perfect. Yeah, no, it's great. He's great. And and literally, uh, you know, other than my wife, I didn't have lunch with anyone the entire pandemic, except we sat in his backyard. And basically, wow. uh, we're just making that as a podcast. So it'll just be whoever we have lunch with. And, uh, uh, you know, we, wow. we, we, we just we're just starting. We did the photo shoot for it. Uh, this morning, I got the photo to approve. And the only problem with me, when you look like me, it's like, I'm thinking like, can we do a photo with someone else? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, that, That's like that, me. I'm like, Hey, this pandemic masks have been my blessing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but this um, mug case. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so in any case, yeah, but uh, Phil and I, it's called naked lunch. And thankfully we will be dressed for the most part, but uh, that's actually based on a novel by William Burroughs that Steely Dan for you music fans got their name from a, rather dirty uh uh sort of character in naked lunch so uh yeah. but we are dressed and talking with different friends nice that's gonna be awesome so wait is are you actually gonna be like noshing through the whole thing or is it just like conversation you know what that's we've done like tapings and you know there are people it's a big you you know as audio enthusiasts you will have an opinion but like yeah there's there's definitely people go well you can't eat and talk uh, <laughs> yeah you're gonna have so, people come yeah, yeah so you know I'm- I, I think you will hear some chewing and uh <laughs> uh so we may find out that that's people really like to hear Old guys like us chew. Well, I hope you have uh, Ray Romano on because uh, that 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 show, man. Everybody loves Raymond. Was such a phenomenal show. So good. Yeah, but uh, so good. We've had we've had many lunches. One of the great uh, trips of my life was we did a. I was a host. I was not a writer for Everybody Loves Raymond. I I wish I had that syndication money. Uh, right. But I, I was the host of a show that we did. We traveled America. Do and we did like inside the writer's room of Raymond. And we did one date in Hawaii in a giant, like uh, wow. 3000 seat arena where I would, and we where Ray joined us. And we, uh, so we spent like a week in Hawaii eating meals with all the writers and Ray. And I've never laughed as much like, uh, <laughs> uh, and they still, he still like, we had lunch. Uh, uh, I think right. We had one lunch during the pandemic, but like, He's still, they, you know, they're the best. We did a, uh, a charity event for the actor's home here, you know, right. the motion picture home. Yeah. And for that, we had Phil uh, just Zoom with Ray and Brad Garrett for, and like, oh, Jesus. like said, do we write anything? And, and Phil goes, we don't have to write a thing. And just the three of them on Zoom for 
it's one of the, you know, it's like we're supposed to do two minutes. It's like 15 minutes and you can't stop laughing because Brad Garrett insulting Ray still, it's still fun. Listen, when those two come to the Just for Last Festival in Montreal, which is like 20 minutes down the road from me, they kill every time. Oh, they are just did. the kings did, of comedy. I did Just for Laughs with that inside the writer's room of Raymond. And yeah. it, uh, it was, un- what an unbelievable thrill that was. That was such And what a, a great, right, yeah. what a great festival. I mean, it's the oh, only sort of world fantastic. festival for comedians. Oh, it was the greatest. There used to be, we did the Aspen Comedy Festival as well. And I'll, mm. I will never forget that because... Like I am not a comedian, as you can tell. I'm and but I did for that. I would for the show, I would walk out and tell three sort of jokes to loosen up the crowd and then bring out the writers. Yeah. And but when I walked out at the Aspen Comedy Festival, the front row was Dave Chappelle. Jesus. Uh wow. I think Jennifer Aniston. Wow. And my wife, between the three of them, of oh, Ben Stiller, I was never more scared, like trying to tell a joke. Oh uh, man. Be shaking in your boots, just oh, yeah. <laughs> Gee, you got Ben Stiller staring at you. Yeah, you shake. Yeah, yeah Dave yeah. Chappelle, come on. <laughs> true, true. Yeah. Dave too. Oh. Comedy, comedy gold, right there. Anyway, I can't I, believe we've gone over an hour. This is crazy. This, I know, this and we still haven't like asked that. him any questions. No, I'm kidding. There you go. <laughs> that, that was fantastic, and I love this. And and I have to say, you're right. When you're talking to different people, you know, we always talk to to rock stars or whatever, and it's like. Tell me about the new album. Tell me about the tour. Yeah, tell and, me and, about and, Mutt Lang. And, yeah, tell me about Mutt Lang. And, and become very cyclical, even though I love it. But yeah. this was this was a whole new sort of palette to paint on or to palette to paint with. Brilliant. Merci, as we say in Montreal. Yeah. My pleasure. I've listened, so now it's fun to be on. And uh, let me know when it's going to be on, so I'll yeah. shamelessly promote like I promote everything. Absolutely. Well, the 64th Annual Grammy Awards happening on Sunday, April 3rd. Plus, you can check out the new book, Lifted, Fab Images and Memories in My Life with the Beatles from Across the Universe, Ringo and David involved in that, and all kinds of other stuff. The The podcast on Stitcher. You're busy. Busy guy. Uh, trying, trying to stay so. <laughs> All right, dude. Merci perfect. Bien. Thank you so. Great. Nice, to- nice talking to you guys. Cheers. All right. Enjoy See you supper. Later. I will. Bye. An all new episode of the Mitchell Fun and Jeremy White Show. Tuesday at noon. Available wherever you stream. Catch up on past interviews, bonus content, and episodes on demand now. Visit youtube.com slash Jeremy White Show. Follow Mitch and Jeremy on Twitter. Yeah, they're verified. At Mitch LaFon and at Jeremy White MTL.